Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, July the 17th, 2023. It is currently 3.19 p.m. Central Time. About 15 minutes ago, I was in the middle of a live broadcast when the software for Spreaker froze up. It just completely froze up, and that ended the broadcast as far as Spreaker is concerned. We were still live on the other platforms, but it's the Spreaker software that played the audio that we were reviewing. So at that point, everything was lost. However, Spreaker did save an archive of all of the audio of that broadcast. So here is what we're going to do. For the next 49 minutes and 36 seconds, I am going to be replaying what I did in that live broadcast. At the conclusion of those 49 minutes and 36 seconds, I'm then going to, you're going, we're going to switch over from listening to what I've already done and then transition into finishing it out all in one broadcast. I know this is a little awkward in doing it this way, but I think this gives the greater this will have a, a greater chance of accomplishing some kind of continuity to the entire thing. I could have just started a second broadcast saying uh, and, and make it part two, but then part one would have ended. It would have been just all weird. So this kind of gives some sense of continuity to, to everything. So here in a minute, what we're going to be doing is I'm just going to go back and replay what I did in the last live broadcast at the con- where, where everything froze up. It's going to end abruptly. Then I'm just going to, I'm going to just immediately switch over and then come back in live. And we're going to wrap it up in a nice, hopefully powerful way, because I think the sermon review was going very well. I think I was making some very, I think, good observations and, uh, well, I don't want to waste it. So. Are you ready? Let's do this. Now, if if you don't want to listen right now, just come back in about 49 minutes. (laughs) Come back in 49 minutes, and then you'll hear where everything stopped. If you weren't listening the last live broadcast, well, then welcome. Everything you're about to hear is going to be, well, brand new to you. For the rest of you, well, you know, repetition is the key to learning. I guess you can listen to it again. But for the next 49 minutes and 36 seconds... We're going to hear what I just did. And then at the end of that, we're going to wrap it up, hopefully, in a decent way. Does it sound good? Are you ready? Here we go. Let's go to the last live broadcast so that we can get to the conclusion here in about 49 minutes. Listen carefully. Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, July the 17th, 2023. It is currently 2.13 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And it's everyone's favorite time. It is sermon review time. (laughs) 
the reality is, I don't know if it's anyone's favorite time. I, I really don't know if it's anyone's favorite time. I always want to believe that, hey, you know, wh- whatever I'm doing, hey, it's law and gospel time. Yay. Hey, it's sermon review time. Yay. It's today's focus time. Yay. I, I, I want to, th- in my mind, I want to believe that it, everything is everyone's favorite thing, but the reality it is that I don't really know I don't dig into the numbers enough to really try to determine this is our, my most popular series. This is my, the most popular thing. I try, I can sometimes judge by emails, but let's just be honest. What, what do you think? When I get an email, do you think it's more likely I'll get an email when someone is mad, upset, or has a complaint, or I get an email when someone really liked a message? If you think it's more common for me to get uh, emails when people say, great job, thank you, really appreciate you, uh, how can I support you, what can I do to help? No, those are in the minority of the minority of the minority. Typically, you're going to get an email when people are like, who do you think you are? You are so wrong. And an attack, 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 attack. Because people are much more likely to email their frustrations than they are their support or approval and uh, their encouragement. You don't get a lot of encouraging emails. Now, I, I do get some, and I am so grateful for those. But uh, so, so sometimes it's hard to know. Like the 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 people who tend to be angry or attack, they just tend to be more vocal. So you can't really judge anything based off that. You got to make sure you kind of put it in perspective, right? So um, I'm always grateful, but. I, the bottom line is, I don't really know if that if sermon reviews are really people's favorite. I have a good time with them. I think some of you do, so that's what we're going to do. And why are we going to be doing a sermon review on this Monday, July the seventeenth? Because it is July the seventeenth, and that means this evening at seven p.m. This evening at 7 p.m., the 2023 National Sword Conference begins. The 2023 National Sword Conference begins this evening at 7 p.m., broadcasting live streaming from North Carolina, the National Sword Conference. You can keep up with all of the conference at swordofthelord.com, swordofthelord.com. It's live streaming there. It is free. We are going to pay attention to it. We're going to keep up with it. And the reason we're doing this is because I like to keep my eye on what's going on in the world of Christianity. Here's one of those conferences that are free, live streaming being live streamed to be free, which I always applaud that. They don't even charge, I think, people to attend it in person, which I applaud that. And it just, it's, it's an opportunity for you and I to kind of get insight into what's going on in that particular theological world, that theological stream. And that is more of the independent, fundamental Baptist, KJV, KJV only, sword of the Lord world. And so we're going to kind of get a glimpse into what's going on there. What do they think is important in 2023? Uh, what are they concerned about? What's their spiritual focus? And so we are going to be keeping up with that. If you would like to participate and paying attention and taking notes on the 2023 National Sword Conference and then sending those, those notes to me, we would really appreciate your help and helping out because 
I don't know if I'm going to be able to watch all of it. So if you watch some of it and take notes, then we're going to have someone compile all of the notes into a PDF. And then we're going to kind of give our report of, hey, here's what happened on day one. Here are the messages. Here were the speakers. Here was the text. Here's a summary. Here's questions people had, or here's my thoughts or my concerns. We'll compile it all together, make it into a PDF, and we'll make it available to everyone. So it'll be like our little snapshot of what's going on in that world of theology this summer, the summer of 2023. Now, the schedule, just so that you know for the conference, begins tonight at 7 p.m. There's two speakers tonight, Shelton Smith and Dan Carr Sr. That'll be at 7 p.m. and then at 8 p.m. Tomorrow, day two, starts at 8.30. There's a seminar. (laughs) Obviously, they're not in favor of Calvinism called Combating Calvinism. That begins at 8.30. Then 9.30 a.m. is Matt Morrison. 10.30 a.m. is Ron Titus. 11.30 a.m. is Mike Wells. Then 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. is the School of the Prophets. 7 p.m., Lou Rossi. 8 p.m. is Jeff Fugate. That's day two. Day three, basically the exact same schedule. 8.30, 30, 10.30, 11.30, 1.30 to 3.30, 7.00 p.m. and 8.00 p.m. Day four, the exact same schedule. So you'd like to jump in and say, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll watch the 11.30 a.m. on day two. Then great. Then we know that, hey, that you're good to go. If you can participate on any of those times, just email me, newsif at yahoo.com newsif at yahoo.com and tell me if you'd like to see the schedule, go to swordofthelord.com. There's a blog article right there about the conference and they lay out in a chart all the sessions and you can pick which one, say you're going to take notes on it. And then I know I don't have to pay attention to that one or other people don't. And we'll kind of keep a track of it and we'll just see. I think it should be fun. It should be fun. But what better way what better way to prepare us for the sword, the National Sword Conference of 2023? What's a, what a, what's a better way of preparing ourselves than, than going back to the National Sword Conference 2022 and picking a sermon from that conference? I think this was sermon number three that was preached at that conference. So it would have been the one that began day two. It probably would have been the first sermon of day two because it looks like day one is typically two sermons. This would have been starting day two of the conference in the summer of 2022. What are they going to be talking about? What do we think? What do we think about the theology? Most importantly, what do we think about their hermeneutical method? What do we think about how they handled the text? Their interpretation, obviously, their hermeneutic. How, what method are they using to drive that interpretation? Do they, well, we could just, we could talk hermeneutics here, but we will not. Are you ready? Now, the audio here starts kind of low. And then somewhere in kind of the, his introduction, they, they switch something over, right? Either they switch to a new mic, you'll kind of, kind of hear this click. And then I won't say the volume gets louder, but it gets kind of fuller and hopefully it will be loud enough for you. If the introduction is a little quiet, I apologize. I have the volume cranked all the way up and uh, you may have to crank your volume up. Whenever we're doing a review and there's a major difference in the sound volume, I know it can be irritating on your side and I do apologize for that. I just will try to be mindful and when I come back in to offer my criticism, critique, thoughts, and analysis, 
I'll try not to, you know, blow out your eardrums. All right. If I do, just yell at me and, uh, well, I won't hear you, so it really won't matter, but you can yell at me. All right. Are you ready? Here we go. We're going to go back to North Kakalaki, North Carolina, summer of 2022 to the National Sword Conference. This was the first sermon of day two. Tonight, July the 17th, 2023, begins the 2023 National Sword Conference. Sounds good. Hopefully you'll participate. Are we going to agree with everything? I think we're pretty sure we know we will not. But it should be fun to kind of just see what's going on. And we'll get to hear a lot of preaching. And we'll definitely utilize that to our spiritual benefit. Let's go see what was going on in the summer of 2022. Here we go. This church, and uh, this is the 25th time that I've had the privilege to stand behind this pulpit at this conference. And we were at the Sword uh, at the headquarters two years in a row. Had a wonderful time there, and the Lord did some great things. But it is good to be back here in Walkertown today. And uh, what great messages last night. Uh, by both speakers. Uh, I've already changed the message twice now. And uh, the first message, I said, oh, there goes that one. And uh, what a great message on uh, how that God can, and he sure is able. Say amen. And then the second message on the solid rock. Uh, Brother Morris, he did a great job, uh, both speakers. And so I said, well, there I go again. The good part is I'm first this morning. So now the other guys, are they're throwing their sermons out, getting another one, and uh, they're sitting in the hot seat, nervous, biting their fingernails. I'm going to preach and be done, and uh, I'm so glad to be here today. I want to say that uh, publicly, worldwide, wherever whoever's listening, I want to say that his family, his ministry. He has been a blessing and a dear friend to me for a lot of years. He was a friend to me when he didn't have to be, and I appreciate that so much, and uh, I thanked him this morning that I always know Dr. Smith is the same. Amen? He's going to keep, in a good way, he's the same. And we have a generation of people that are changing, swerving, dropping out, as we heard about last night. And I thank God for people who are the same. You don't have to wonder what he's going to preach. You don't have to wonder what Bible he's going to preach from. He's not going off on anything. He gave us a few new words. I think uh, uh, he's not going to charismatize or uh, contemporary eyes or any other eyes. He's going to stay with the Bible, say amen. And we're thankful for Dr. Smith this morning. Turn your Bibles, please, to the book of, of Mark, chapter number 5. The book of Mark, chapter number 5. I've been wrestling this morning and last night. I began to preach from Matthew 16 where Jesus made that incredible statement, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We'll stay away from that this morning, and I'm going to look at Mark chapter number 5, and I want us to begin to read this morning from verse number 25. Okay, now before he gets into the text, a couple of things. I do love that phrase that I've been wrestling with, wrestling with. I love that imagery 
of a pastor sitting in a study wrestling with the text. Now, sometimes I wish the wrestling with the text did not stay in the study. I wish the wrestling of the text came to the pulpit and then you invite everyone in to wrestle with the text with you. So many times I feel like pastors wrestle with the text. They look up commentaries for their particular theological team, figure out what their team says, and then just go with that. And the wrestling doesn't really translate over. It doesn't transfer over. But I like my approach is, hey, guys, here's the text. There's plenty to wrestle with, and we're going to wrestle with it together. We're going to struggle. We're going to ask questions. We're not going to worry about which team gets offended. I don't care who gets offended. I'm not worried about the team. I just want to know what the text has to say. And then we figure it out together, acknowledging what we can't say, what the text doesn't say, and acknowledging what when we can't answer certain questions. So I love that imagery. And hopefully in your Christian life, that really describes your relationship with the Bible. It's a constant wrestling match. It's a constant struggle. There's like, oh, what about this? And what about that? And and this? And I, I don't know about this. And oh, man, this is confusing. And oh, I don't know about that. And you truly experience that. It should be a wrestling match. That's my take. And so I love that imagery. He's going to go with Mark chapter five. There's a lot, there's a lot of things we could do. He could do with this. I don't know which way he's going to go. I think he's going to begin in, I think he said Matthew chapter five, or Matthew, Mark chapter five. He mentioned Matthew 16, Mark chapter five, uh, starting in verse 25. Mark chapter five, verse 25. That's going to be the text. Oh, there's a lot. He, I don't know which way he's going to go with this text. I don't know. We're going to listen. I think we're going to get some indication very early on. Now, what we listen for whenever we do a sermon review is we first, we want to establish, does he establish what his thesis is? Here's kind of his thesis for the text. Then we try to look to see, does he acknowledge context? Then we look and see, does he acknowledge historical context? And then we want to pay attention to how he handles the text. Is he really worried about what the text means? Or is he just going to grab something from the text so that he can rush off basically to a topic? Is this going to be text-based or more a topical message where the text is simply a launching pad to said topic? We're going to pay close attention to all of that. All right? Sounds good? Here we go. I have a generous amount of time this morning. I will stay within that time. And I appreciate speakers who get up, stay in their time frame, and sit down. And I appreciate uh, so much the man I know that will do that in this conference. Mark chapter 5. Verse 25, let's stand together for the reading of the holy, inspired, infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 5, verse number 25. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years, and it suffered many things of many physicians, and it spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, 
She felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched thee, or who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Be whole of thy plague. Our text is a great and well-known chapter in our Bible. It's the account of a woman who'd been sickly for 12 long years. She'd gone to every physician that she knew about, tried every cure. If you're ever preaching in a meeting, never make the mistake of telling people that you're sick. Because after the meeting, they're going to give you more cures and stuff than you've ever heard about in your life. Especially if you're an evangelist. They'll come knock on your trailer door. They'll bring you stuff you never heard of in your life. Bone broth, carrot juice, colloidal silver, and everything else under the sun. But this woman had tried it all. She'd spent everything she had. She had likely got to the place where she had given up hope. But then she heard. She heard about a new physician who'd come to town. One who'd come to help and to heal. And she said, I'm tired of all these other physicians. Okay, now this is just a, a, an issue. I, it's, it's for preachers, but it's also for those who listen. Whenever, as a preacher... When we read the text, and let's say it's it's like in a narrative, it tells kind of a story. Here's the story of this woman with an issue of blood, who had an issue of blood for 12 years, right? So we're, we're, the te- we, 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 when, whenever the text gives us some kind of story, it could be about David, it, could, it doesn't matter. It could be about Joseph, Joshua, it doesn't matter who the story is about. When preachers will read the story as given in the text and then pastors inevitably retell the story in their preaching. And typically in the retelling of the story, what do you want to call it? We begin to embellish. We begin to add. We begin to try to paint a picture. And when you start painting the picture of the story that you just read, so here's the story. Here's the original picture, right? So like if you were to, if you were to like try to visualize this, let's say on the left-hand side, there's the original picture that captures the actual story of the woman with an issue of blood. A pastor comes along reads the story as it's given in the text, then begins to retell it. But just watch, sometimes when he's done retelling it, does it really look like what you read? Because he starts adding in 
emotion. He may start narrating the thoughts in the woman's mind. He starts giving you a lots of background that may not be in the text. Now, most of the, most of the time, listeners seem not to mind this. They seem to enjoy it, especially if he's really good at doing so, if he's a good storyteller, because he can make the story come to life. And many people love that. They're like, oh, pastor, you made that story come to life. You made it so real. You made it so, oh, I loved it. I've never, I've never seen the story that way. Now, the question is, maybe you never saw the story that way because he just made up a story. Like, that's not the actual story. This is my problem with shows like The Chosen and other things that take Bible stories and try to bring them to life. They embellish. They add to. And so now you read those stories with the embellishment in mind. And so now you're assigning motive or or emotion, or feeling to maybe a biblical character where the text doesn't really tell you what the motive was, what the emotion behind it was. You're just now speculating. Well, guess what? How much can you embellish the story before you're actually no longer preaching the actual story? You're preaching the embellishment. And when does preaching the embellishment stops actually then mean it means you're no longer preaching the text? Now, it's hard not to do that. Here's a woman with an issue of blood for 12 years. It's hard as a preacher not to want to say, oh, she had to be at the end of her rope and, and she, and like you can just start going and going. But where is that line when you cross it? And now you, what you're giving people is not the inerrant. Remember, they stood for the reading of the inerrant, inspired, infallible word. And everybody in the background was like, amen. Then he read the inspired, inerrant, infallible word. And then he starts retelling the story. And he's already adding stuff to the story. Does that bother you? Now, you're, you, you are either used to this or not used to this, depending on your pastor at your church, right? Some of your pastors are great communicators. They excel in their communication skills. They can tell stories. They have great inflection. They can capture emotion. That's a great talent. But sometimes that talent is detrimental to the clear exposition of God's word. Some of your pastors may be no good at that. They're not good at that in any way, shape, or form. No good at that in any way, shape, or form. However, they're very good at sticking to the text. Now, the thing is, sometimes the pastor who's not the great communicator, who can't really embellish or tell the story, he may be more faithful to the text. But guess what you get? A lot of people are like, oh, man. Ugh, like they, because they don't, it just seems boring. It seems dry. So there's got to be a balance. Someone just said in, in the, in the chat, powerful point and a good reminder to me, the listener. Well, I hope it's, look, it's a, it's a powerful reminder for me because I listen to sermons and there's been times I'm like, whoa, man, that was good. And then I'll be like, wait a minute. What was so good about that? Did I really learn the text or just, man, he was such a good communicator. 
for a pastor, good, being a good communicator sometimes can be detrimental to actually being a good Bible teacher. The average listener, I don't think, sees it that way. Just a thought. How much can you embellish the story? How much can you embellish on a biblical text? Man, I've heard the story of David's great adultery. I've heard that story told so many different ways, so many nuances. What was in David's mind? What was in her mind? What was her motive? What was David's motive? And you'll go. And then when you read the actual text, you sometimes wonder, where did any of this come from? And it really shades how you see the text. You can't let the pastor create a narrative that is not actually coming from the text. But see, you'll think it's coming from the text because, well, he read the text. Then he began to embellish on it. It's subtle. It's dangerous. And it's detrimental to true biblical hermeneutics. I have to remind myself as a speaker because, man, I'm, I love that. If I get a good story like that, just step back. Let me go. Man, I can just take off. And with me, who knows? I'm going to be adding who knows what to the story. Then an alien spacecraft came down. And then there, then there was a, uh, an invasion. I'm like, who knows? I mean, you get me involved in a story. I can just go, 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 go. So I have to, I have to be careful. But I, but I know that it, you can get caught up. You can make it funny. You can make it dramatic. You can make it emotional. And, and, and the listeners eat that stuff up. And then you destroy the actual meaning of the text. You may get more downloads. You may get more streams and you may get more people in attendance. But what they, what those people don't get is they get a good storyteller. They just don't get the word of God. And she said, I'm done with you. And she changed doctors. For a few moments this morning, I'd like to preach on the subject. She changed doctors. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you today for the Word of God. May you bless it. And, oh God, we know that we live in a sick nation, a generation that is ill, deeply ill. And, God, I pray that at some point, at some place, finally they might look unto thee and be saved and turn to you and believe you and reach out and touch that seamless garment. Settle upon us and help us today. Thank you for what you'll accomplish this morning. And God, we thank you that upon this rock, you've said you would build your church. That the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of a living God. And I pray you'll help us today. Thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. All of God's people said together. Amen. You may be. Okay, a lot to say about the prayer. All right, couple of things. Number one, I talk about it all the time. When pastors pray, when pastors pray before their sermon or pray at the end of their sermon. And I pray at the end of the sermon mainly just because it's expected. Sometimes I hate myself for my prayer. I try to always go back and listen to my prayer after I'm done. And I usually want to kick myself. I've got to find a better way to do it. But here's the thing. Let's just remind ourselves. Prayer is us communicating with God. Prayer is us communicating with God. So we got to be careful. I'm not saying he's doing this. I'm just speaking about prayers of pastors in general when it's connected with a church service. 
You just can't like, oh, I'm going to pray before my sermon. And what do you start doing? You start preaching your sermon. And a roundabout way, did he not just kind of give you an idea where he's going? He just gave you an idea. Hey, our the nation is sick. So he's going to take this story of the woman with an issue of blood and he's going to kind of turn it into an allegory. And in his allegory, the woman's going to be the nation that is sick and we have an issue of blood. And the only way for the nation to be right is to reach out and touch the hem of his garment. So he's going to take this story, almost turn it into an allegory. That's the way he prayed it, turn it into an allegory. But is that the point of the story? Is the point of the story descriptive or is is it prescriptive? Is this telling how a nation can be healed? Is this te- like, what are we doing with this? But see, his prayer, he almost started preaching the sermon. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I think he just kind of gave us a little headway, a little hint of where, a little idea of where he is going. And if he did, then he really was getting a head start on his sermon. And then sometimes at the end of the sermon, what does a pastor do in his prayer? He tries to reiterate the sermon. He tries to, to, to summarize it. He's still preaching. Sometimes we start, get a head start in our preaching with the opening prayer. And then we get a, a, a one more time of, to review the sermon at the end. That's not what prayer is designed for. It's not designed for preaching. It's designed for speaking to God. So, I'm not such a big, I know, and there's times I won't pray. I, I never pray at the beginning. And sometimes I won't pray at the end, but I've had literally, we've had visitors at my church. come. Why didn't you pray? Like, where was the prayer? And I'm like, well, because I don't know. I was afraid that I would just end up preaching during my prayer. Like, like people don't seem to understand the issue, but to me, it's disrespectful. If I'm supposed to be talking to God, talk to God, Right. If someone's sitting there talking to you, but they're not really talking to you, they're, 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 they're looking at you, but they're really talking to someone else. I think you would probably get offended. Like, well, well, wait a minute. I thought we're talking. No, no, I'm, I'm talking to, 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 I'm talking to her right over here next to me. Well, I thought you were talking to me. I think you would get offended by that. Well, that's the, the creator of the universe. When I pray to address him, talk to him, guess what he doesn't need? He doesn't need me to rehash my sermon. He doesn't need me to, to start giving a hint of where my sermon is going. He's God. He doesn't need me to preach to him. Now, I'm not saying exactly that's what exactly happened there, but it does give us some insight. about. And I look, I've been guilty of it a billion times. And I think every preacher on earth has been guilty of it. Something we have to remind ourselves of. But he, to me, when he was, when I was listening to that prayer, I was like, he's letting me know hermeneutically where this is going. Now, I could be wrong, but it seems like he's going to turn this into more of an allegory for a sick nation who has an issue of blood, who needs to touch the hem of the garment of Jesus and then will be healed. How does that translate in any meaningful, practical way? Let's see. Be seated. Thank you for standing for so long. Our text tonight finds, or this morning, finds the Lord Jesus coming back to the region of Capernaum. Most of-
you know, that was his headquarters, especially in the early portion of his ministry. And he would go there and stay in that part of the world and uh, preach the gospel and give out the word of God. The night before, he had gone to Gadara, and while there, he had healed a man who was demon-possessed with a group of demons that was so many, they called him a legion, that he called to go down into a herd of swine and went down into the Sea of Galilee. Now Jesus comes back uh, by a ship the next morning and finds a great crowd of people waiting to hear the Word of God, waiting to hear him preach, and a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, comes to Christ and says, my daughter is sick of a fever and Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house to heal his little girl. While on the way, the Bible tells us a certain woman, no one gives her name, we do not know who she was, but a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years. Study the Bible, you're going to find out that first of all, she was sickly. She was a very sick woman. She had an issue of blood, probably an internal hemorrhage, and most Bible scholars believe that that hemorrhage was likely an STD, something she had brought upon herself because of a life of sin. Whoa. Okay, okay. We got we got to work on this. First, someone says it's also not de- designed for moms to make theological points to their listening children, which I'm guilty of a billion times. Yeah, and also I would say the closing the closing prayer, it's not also the time for people to start gathering and putting putting away all of their stuff and because a lot of people like they're not even paying like oh, it's prayer time. I'm going to put my Bible away. I'm going to put everything on my bag. Get gather the kids. Okay. All right. He's almost done praying. Go. Okay. It's no, just just it's prayer. Just someone's communicating with God. Everyone needs to stop what they're doing and just focus on that. Okay. Now back to that. Someone just said that in the uh, chat. All right. Now back to the sermon. He just said that most likely this woman had an STD and this issue of blood is something she brought upon herself. All right. Now, yeah, yeah. Someone just said, "Is that part of? Is that part in the text?" All right. Now he says, "Bible scholars seem to believe this." Now here's what I would challenge you to do. I, I don't have time to do this right now because we're already at 33 minutes, and I don't want this sermon review to go past the actual conference that begins tonight. All right. But here is my challenge for you today, my theology central students. All right. Are you ready? I need you to do your research. I need you to use Google, Siri, Alexa, friend, foe, phone, text, fax machine, beeper. I don't care what technological device you use. See if you can find anything that would indicate this woman had an STD and that she brought her issue of blood upon herself because of her sinful lifestyle. Because that's what he just clearly implied that, hey, this woman has an issue of blood. She brought it on herself because she has an STD. Now, I don't know how you would come to this conclusion. I don't even know where you would come to this conclusion. But maybe there's something I'm missing. All right. I I have studied this text many times, but this is why you listen to sermons, because you hear new things, new perspectives, new hypotheses. So we take the hypotheses as a possibility, maybe even as a probability, and then we research it to see what we can find. So, ladies and gentlemen, did this woman have an issue of blood? Because of an STD, and and therefore this issue of blood is something she brought upon herself. Now, for now, just continue to listen to the review, and then you can start research. Some of you are already starting to research it. I see you. Stop what you're doing. 
Pay attention. We got to make it through the rest of the sermon review. Just write that down. Research was the woman with an issue of blood. Was it this a was this due to an STD? And then you can see if you can figure that out. I don't know exactly how you would do this. I don't know what. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Unless the phrase "issue of blood" in the Greek indicates a certain kind of disease that people at that time were familiar. Maybe outside of the Bible, that phrase issue of blood always referenced an STD. Maybe there is some evidence that would lead us in that direction. But here's the thing. If the text, does the text, here's, I think this is the real question. Does the text, do we need to figure out what caused the issue of blood? Because the text doesn't tell us what caused it. Is the text should we impose upon the text this woman she got she's she was getting what she deserved she brought this on herself does the text indicate that hey you deserve this because you have an std i i like even if we can identify that it was an std clearly that does the text seem to indicate to indicate that she had done something wrong She was hemorrhaging. She could not get well. She was unclean. If you study Leviticus 15, you know that a woman with an issue was an unclean person. And if they touched you, you would be unclean as well. Now, that is a more pertinent point. She would have been unclean. I believe it's Leviticus 15, 25. She would have been unclean. And I think anyone who touched her would have been unclean. I believe that's Leviticus 15.25. Now, this brings in some possible theological implications and may even give us a reason to kind of see maybe a spiritual picture here, right? She's unclean under the old covenant. She is guilty under the old covenant law. She is, quote unquote, corrupted under that system, right? Maybe we're going to get a picture of law and gospel here. I don't know. Let's see. This woman was sickly. She was suffering. The Bible said in verse number 26 that she suffered, or verse uh, verse 26, she had suffered uh, many things of many physicians. One doctor after another told her, I've got the cure. You give me a certain amount, and you're going to get better. One after another, they took her money, and they, again, uh, she, she followed with another disappointment, heartache, and loss. She was sickly. She was suffering. I'm sure that she was sorrowful. She got nothing better, but the Bible said, rather, she grew worse. She got worse and worse all the time. She could not get help. She could not find healing. And this sorrowful woman, now we find that she had spent all that she had on these physicians. She was sick. She was sorrowful, suffering, and yes, she was spent. She had tried it all. She had tried everything you could possibly imagine to get better. Every uh, time she heard about a new physician in town, she would try that one and try the next one and went all the way down through the gamut until finally she was broke. She was uh, brokenhearted. And there she is in a sick condition uh, and in all kinds of trouble. I can tell you that I came into fundamentalism a bit late in life. I came in as a young man out of a life of sin. And God changed my life. 
life from the inside out. And I'm so grateful to be able to say to you that I am a new creature in Christ because of what he has done for me. And I- Okay, I'm not even going to address this because you know, I'm a new creature in Christ. The old is gone. Everything is new. So you're saying you no longer have a sinful nature. You are new in your position, in your practice. You're still a sinner. Maybe different sins, but still a sinner and still a sinful nature, unless they believe in the eradication of the old man, which I know they don't. But this is such common. This is one of those things. It's called Christianese. We just say words because that's what all the other Christians say. And we never stop to think of the theological implications of said words that we are saying. To say that you're a new creature in Christ now practically means that you are saying I'm new. The old is gone. Everything is new, meaning there is no more sinful nature, which would mean the eradication of the old man, meaning that not only can you be perfect, you should be perfect because you're basically sinless now. Well, that's not true. We continue to sin because the sinful nature is not eradicated. It's not eradicated to glor- to glorification. So you can't say you are a new creature. The old is gone and all is new. Now you can only say that that is true positionally, not practically. And how it's true positionally is because by faith, the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account and you're declared to be perfect and holy and righteous, even though in practice you are not. But okay, if you want to stand in front of everyone and tell them that you're a new creature and that everything is new, then expect that crowd to judge you on the basis of you being able to be perfect. And well, I'm assuming you fail that test every single day, just like I do and everyone else does. All right. I remember coming into uh, to church, to church and trying to figure it all out. I didn't know a Baptist from a Methodist from a Pentecostal. Didn't know any of it. But the more I studied the Bible, the more I was led of God to join an independent fundamental Baptist church. I went to a little college that doesn't even exist anymore. And a part of the curriculum was every week we had to read a copy of the Sword of the Lord and give a report on the sermons that we read. I don't even believe that the dean of that college believed in the sword of the Lord. But we read it anyway. It was in Kansas City, same city you were in. And uh, this little obscure place I was learning, I looked at the sword of the Lord. The first one, uh, my first impression was, did I have to have glasses like that? There was Dr. Oliver Green, there was Dr. Bob Gray, and there was Dr. Jack Howells all on the, on the front page, and they all had the same glasses. I thought, I guess I have to have those black glasses uh, in order to be spiritual. Then I started reading the magazine and reading the public and God began to change my life and it became uh, by conviction an independent fundamental Bible-believing Baptist by conviction. And by the grace of God, through these years, the Lord has kept us. But uh, one thing, when I came into this, there was a big shift going on. I went to the Southwide Baptist Fellowship for the first time. Man, I couldn't wait to go. I was so fired up. I thought this was the mecca of fundamentalism. Most of the preachers were preaching against the independent Baptists. They were preaching against us. I wanted to say, hey, wait a minute, boys. Uh, you might be heading towards new evangelicalism. I'm coming out of that stuff. There's nothing over there that's going to help you say amen. But, brother, uh, they were trying this. They were trying that. Okay, now i got to jump in just because for a historical perspective, it is, I love hearing this because it's so important if you study your church history, you need to know that evangelicalism and fundamentalism split, right? The, the, there was a split and the evangelicalism took a more, a, not a more 
non-militant approach, a much more um, ecumenical approach, a much more friendly approach, a much more loving approach. We don't want to fight. We don't want to be so argue about doctrine and theology. And many of them embrace some of the ideas that were coming from Europe, higher criticism and some of those kinds of things. So evangelicalism took a more, uh, we could say, a softer approach, a non-militant approach. And there was a lot of compromise, didn't want to necessarily draw theological distinctions, wanted a little bit more ecumenical approach. That was kind of your evangelical world there. Now, there was a lot, there was a lot of variety within the evangelical world, but there was much more of this kind of, uh, let's, you know, agree, let's, let's, uh, you know, let's agree that we disagree, right? Let's agree to disagree and kind of just do our own thing. Where the fundamentalist was much more like, no, we're not going to compromise. No, this is right and this is wrong. This is true doctrine. This is false doctrine. And they took a more militant tone. And you kind of get this split between evangelicalism and fundamentalism. Fundamentalism was very concerned about higher criticism coming in from Europe. They were, they were, they were concerned about the compromises they felt were happening in seminaries. They were definitely against the ecumenical movement. They were uh, typically very, very anti the charismatic movement. This was kind of more the fundamentalism. And there was that split. Now you could talk in, in, in within the evangelicalism. You had evangelicalism and then the new evangelicalism. Okay. But so they were transitioning as well. And then over here, you still had the fundamentalists. And now I believe the fundamentalists started off fighting for the fundamentals of the faith. And then it kind of, to me, transitioned into more of a, at times, an external righteousness, almost legalistic approach. And some of the fundamentals of the faith were overshadowed by, we don't listen to rock and roll. We don't go to movies. We don't wear, have long hair and started just going to these list of external behaviors. And so, well... You can kind of see. So he's, he's talking about some of this. Hey, you're, you guys are going back to new evangelicalism. I'm leaving it. He, he's talking about that split. And it's just, it's good to kind of just see how Christianity has gone through these ups and downs and twists and turns and splits and divisions. And then one gimmick and one campaign and one newfangled idea came up after another. And I found out that it seemed like every new idea, we didn't get better, we just got worse. We got further along and farther from God than we were before that. And, uh, and along the way, I've learned one thing. If we're ever going to get anywhere, we have got to get back to Jesus one more time. We must get back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing that and giving it out and preaching that and so winning and giving our lives for the glory of God. Several years ago, I went to a conference that had changed my life, and uh, the last time I ever attended, they'd given over for the, for the theme of taking care of yourself, juicing and, uh, and vitamins and this sort of a thing. Man, I had a preacher that I always looked up to, and he was teaching us how to do health food instead of rearing back and preaching. They handcuffed him and put him uh, on the side instead of uh, turning him loose and letting him run. And I remember going to a restaurant after the conference that we would go to every night. Man, there'd be preachers there, soul winning, fired up, stirred up. They're all sitting around talking about what kind of bicycle they were going to buy, what kind of vitamins they were going to get, what kind of juice machine they were going to buy. Listen, friends, they got way off track. They need to get back to the same things that got us here of old, old time religion and yes, timeless religion and serving God for His glory and honor. Boy, I remember going to conferences on prayer. I remember going to the conferences on soul winning. Say, amen. 
How many of you still believe in soul winning? Man, I mean, how many of you are soul winning? Amen. And I mean, regularly winning people to Jesus Christ. I remember the conferences on the King James Bible. Boy, I got stirred up about the King James Bible. Already had one, already believed in it, but I knew now why I love the King James Authorized Bible and on and on. And I believe this with all of my heart. We have tried all kinds of things, tried all kinds of gimmicks, but finally she heard about someone that could truly change lives. She had spent it all. She was sorrowful. She was sick. She was. In, uh, she had tried doctors and debt. And now she had suffered many disappointments. But when she heard about Jesus, she heard about, not about a church, not about a trend, not about a gimmick, not about a new routine, not about some new uh, ritual, she didn't have a TV, so he wasn't a TV preacher or some trendy favorite guy that everybody listens to. No, she heard about one who was named the Son of a Living God. She heard about Jesus, that he'd already cleansed the leper. He'd always raised one from the dead. She heard about one who could save anybody, anywhere, at any time. She heard about a great physician who heals the sick. The lost he came to save. Jesus said in Luke 19 verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He, she heard about this great physician who was setting up shop in Capernaum and people were coming to him and getting help and getting healing. She heard about a, a great physician uh, who had a sign out that said, Walk-ins welcome. Amen? No appointment necessary. The doctor is always in. No HMO needed here. He even makes house calls. He's on his way to Jairus' house. He's going to help him out. And she said, if he can do that, he can help me. And then she heard, wait a minute, he's the best doctor you've ever heard of in your life. He's never lost a patient, say amen. And the Bible makes it clear in John 17, Jesus said, all that the Father hath given unto me are mine. He said, no man shall pluck them out of my hand. And she said, I've got to get to him. If that's how it really is. And that is where the last live broadcast crashed. So let's pick it up from right there. In his preaching of Mark chapter 5, you see he's kind of using, he's kind of creating an analogy. All right, here's this woman, an issue with blood, and she went to all of these doctors and no one can help. And then he's comparing that to the church, that the church is, is you know, changing and looking for this and this and this and this and trying this and none of it will help. And just as she needed Jesus, the church needs to get back to Jesus. Now, you can ask yourself, is that a good analogy? Is that what the text is really trying to say? Is the text really trying to tell all of us, hey, don't look for anything else, only look to Jesus. Is that really the point? Because again, you got to be careful with that because you could take it too far and say, hey, if you're ever sick, don't go to doctors, just go to Jesus. I don't know. I don't know if that's the point of the story. What is the actual point of the story? That would be up for you to, to look at and to really uh, uh, challenge. I, is he going to work through the text? I don't think so. He just wants to draw a contrast. The church is out there looking for every solution 
to all of our problems and we're never going to get it fixed until we get back to Jesus. Then he continues to embellish saying that she said this or she said this or she said this when there's nothing in the text saying that she said anything like that, which is an ongoing problem. Now, I do like, I mean, I I can understand as a preacher, you could be like, look, she looked to solutions. We look to solutions. She looked to the wrong solutions. Jesus was the answer. We look to the wrong solution. Jesus is the answer. But again, you got to be kind of careful. But the real question is, what is the actual meaning of that text? Was it, what is it actually trying to say? Now, we're going to go, go back and finish this sermon <laughs> review. Uh, I know this has been a kind of a, a weird way to try to put these two broadcasts together, but when techno- te- technological difficulties arise, we make the best of it. So, I've got the audio moved back just a little bit, so you're going to hear a little bit of repetition, and then he'll move forward, and I'm going to let this play, and then we'll come in and try to wrap this up to see exactly where he's going to take it, and is he ever going to really try to figure out what is this is what is this text really trying to teach us and tell us? Let's see. Let's see what he does with it. Here we go. And she said, I've got to get to him, if that's how it really is. I need to get to him. She, he'd already told the Pharisees in Mark 2, verse 17, they that are whole need not know, have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance in Mark 2, 17. Now, other doctors could write prescriptions, but this doctor had the cure. I mean, other doctors could make incisions, but this doctor could heal them. And she said, here's one that can heal me and change me and wash me from the inside out. He was the answer to Jeremiah's question who said, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And maybe somebody walked away uh, just singing, there is a balm in Gilead who heals the sin-sick soul. And I believe that with all of my heart, she'd heard about him and hope began to spring up in her heart one more time. Now, I'm glad that she didn't even ask for a private interview. She said in her heart, if I can just touch him, I don't even need to hug him. I mean, I don't even need one of these new, you know, uh, you know the new hugs that people give, brothers, sisters. It's amazing. And, uh, I mean, uh, we've, we've broken down all the walls in our churches. But I'm saying that I uh, didn't even need a great big holy hug, didn't need any of that. He, she said just in her heart, if I can just get to him. If I can just touch him, she had was getting worse. And she said, if I may touch but his clothes, meaning literally, just touch the hem of his garment. She said, I will, I shall be whole. Just note, and I didn't really back it up, I guess, too far. I think that, I think that was a pretty good transition into what you had not heard yet. But he's continuing to embellish. She said this. She said this. She said this. She said this. She said this in their heart. How does he know she was saying all of these things? This is a common issue with preachers. We take the text and we just start building and building and building and building and building until you're no longer actually preaching the actual words. It is a day and listen, as a listener, it's a danger for the preacher, but as a listener, you've got to catch that and go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's, 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 something is being imposed on the text that doesn't belong. You've got to stay true. I know it's not, 
It's better preaching sometimes when you start embellishing and telling the story that way. You create an emotional connection. You cre- But the problem is, I still want to know, what does he think the point is of Mark chapter 5? What do you, why do you think Mark included it in his gospel? What is this supposed to demonstrate? To me, it would be better. He kind of, I like the fact that he went to Jeremiah. Is there not a balm in Gilead? In other words, under the old covenant, was there a cure? Where's there hope? She is unclean under the old covenant. And Luke uh, and uh, Leviticus was at chapter 15. She's unclean. Jesus is going to make her clean. Not only ceremonially, but physically. We are unclean and condemned under the law. What does Jesus do? He completely cleanses us and makes us holy positionally with the hope of one day he will completely remove our fleshly body and sinful nature with a glorified body. Like, that's where you could take this, right? But he's not really so much going in that direction. And again, he's not even referring to imputed righteousness or our positional cleanliness. He's, he's all making this about practical cleanliness and he's, he's taking her being cleansed of an actual physical disease and making that about us being cleansed of sin in a practical way. And I don't know if the two correlate. So, all right, let, let's continue. And that's what happened. She comes in the press, the crowd. She breaks through. And she breaks through this crowd and does something that was not supposed to be done. She reached out. She's not supposed to touch anybody. If she did, they would be defiled because she was unclean. But instead of Jesus becoming clean, she got whole, she got clean, and God himself changed her life. Now, when she touched him, I just have a few things. Uh, First of all, it was a trusting touch. She said, if I can just get to him, if I can touch but his clothes, that's all I need. If I can touch his clothes, I shall be whole, a trusting touch. You know, the Bible says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken spirit, saveth such as be of a contrite heart. She said, I'm trusting him. I don't care what the Pharisees say. It matters not what the doctors say. I'm changing. I'm getting rid of that quack down the road. I'm getting rid of, rid of that, uh, that uh, whatever it is down the street. I'm going to somebody who can help me and heal me. I'm going to the great physician. And hers was a trusting touch. Hers was a tangible touch. When she touched him, now, I would just jump in. If you're really going to kind of go down this road with the text, she, I would, have, I would build it off Leviticus 15. She's unclean. Now, guess what? She reaches out to touch Jesus. Jesus is not corrupted or made unclean by our uncleanliness. Jesus remains holy and pure and cleanses us positionally by imputing his righteousness to us. Not only that, another thing I would say, she did not have to make herself clean to come to Jesus. We don't have to clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. We bring our uncleanliness. We bring our issue of blood. We bring our corruption to Jesus. And we don't have to clean up before. Jesus then declares us to be holy because of an imputed righteousness. Now, I don't know if he's ever going to refer to imputed righteousness one time in this, but we will see. The Bible says that straight away, verse number 29, verse 29, straight away, the fountain of her blood was dried up 
wait a minute, 29, and she what? Felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Well, I think I got saved. I might have got saved. I'm not real sure about it. Okay, now this is a little concerning because he's going to try to draw a correlation between what she felt from being healed of something physically to how we are supposed to feel in salvation. Now, this is very problematic because I don't think this text is, I know this text is not designed to say, hey, as the woman was healed physically, when you are saved, you should feel it. You should know it. It that is not that you can't take this text to build a doctrine of what you should feel when you are saved. I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. I can't feel an imputed righteousness. All right. So oh, this, oh man, because once you start trying to get people to fill out, am I saved or not saved? And it's based on what you felt or didn't feel. Now you're trying to establish spiritual certainty on the basis of human emotion and feeling that you, you don't see a problem with that. Well, uh, I hope I got saved. Listen, friends, I got saved and I, nobody had to tell me. I got some no-so religion going on. I understand some people got saved at a young age, five and six years old, and there's some false teaching going on or saying that, well, you need to get saved again, or maybe you didn't get saved after all. How many believe that Jesus saves children? He, he cleanses them and washes them just like he does an old sinner like I was the same way. And, uh, and so understand, I'm not talking about emotionalism, but I, I can't imagine sticking my finger into a 220 electric socket and saying, uh, I wonder if I got shocked just about now. I mean, I know I, I plugged in my trailer one time. I was standing in a little puddle of water. The electrician assured me it was hooked up properly. I plugged it in and brother, that, that, that grabbed me. My wife stuck her head out the window and said, hey honey, the trailer lights are blinking on and off. It, it, and brother, nobody had to tell me that I got shocked. It's a miracle I lived through that. And I'm saying that when I got saved by the grace of God, it wasn't 220. But it was the power of God and the salvation. For the Bible says that uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. In fact, later on, Jesus perceived that virtue had gone out of him. Same word, power, had gone out of him. Christ had literally uh, saved her and healed her right there on the spot. It was tangible. It was tenacious. Hers was a tenacious touch. She had to break through the crowd. She had to get through the press. I'm sure that people were thronging around. Man, this is the latest and the greatest thing. I'm sure the Epicureans were waiting around to hear and see some new thing. Uh, boy, this Jesus, we heard he's a miracle worker. Maybe he'll work one in our town. She wasn't there to see a circus show. She wasn't there to see Jesus perform. She came in to get healed, and by the grace of God, she did, absolutely. And so hers was tenacious, but hers was trembling. Verse number 33. When the woman fearing, he looked around to see her that had done this thing. He saw the multitude, and verse number 31 says, And sayest thou, Who touched me? The disciples said, You're asking, Who touched me? And he looked around about to see her that had done this thing. Now, a lot of people bumped into him, but only one touched him by faith. 
There's lots of people that are curious about Jesus and curious about religion and might even want to come to church and sit in a pew once in a while, even get involved. But I'm talking about reaching out by faith and touching Christ and being changed by the mighty power of God. And when he confronted and said, who touched my clothes? He looked around to see her that had done this. The woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. As someone in chat just said, just eliminated a lot of us from the kingdom with that theology of doubt. Yes, the, the key is, where do you find assurance of your salvation? Because you felt it? Because you felt like you got shocked by a 220 outlet or whatever it was? Or do, do you, do, because you had a feeling? No, your, your assurance doesn't come from a feeling. Your assurance doesn't even come from supposed change in behavior or action. Your assurance comes from the finished work of Jesus Christ and that you've placed your faith in him and his perfect righteousness is imputed to you. You stand perfect and holy in him. It's just sometimes I, I'm, I'm fascinated that in the evangelical church or in the fundamentalist church of 2022, 2023, that whenever we speak of salvation now, we never speak of a foreign righteousness being imputed to us, an alien righteousness that we are declared righteous even though we are not, imputation. No, it's always in, in, in regards to behavior, behavior, behavior. You're changed, you're changed, you're changed, you're changed, you're changed, you're changed, you're changed. And then yet there's sin, 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 sin. We, we so hype up the supposed change that when people face the reality of their everyday Christian life, which is sin, struggle, failure, doubt, questions, you know, covetousness, gossip, slander, all of the sins that still remain, they can't, they can't Make the two make sense. You sold me this and I got this. It, it's not what the product, it's not what was in the brochure. But we don't ever seem to, we want to, here's a text that you want to make it about salvation. Okay, fine. First of all, you've been given a clue. Leviticus 15 gives you a correlation to her condition under the old covenant. She touches Jesus, which she wasn't supposed to do. And, but yet Jesus is not corrupted by her corruption. Yet she, he makes her clean. We bring our sins to Jesus. He is not corrupted by our sins, but declares us to be perfect and holy because he died for those sins and he accounts his righteousness as ours. There's your, there's kind of a sermon if you want to go that direction and you want to do that. Now you still could ask, what, is that the point of Mark chapter five? But even if, you, but to go that way, you still would be talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. Why is that almost a foreign subject now when salvation is spoken of? Why is it always in regards to behavioral modification? Why is it always in regards to behavior? Why is it never about I'm a sinner. I bring my sin to Christ by faith. He paid for those sins and then he gives me his perfect right. I give him my sin. He accredits to me his perfect righteousness. I don't know why that is so often overlooked. Hers was trembling. She was fearful. Hers was a transforming touch. She was never the same after touching God. It's amazing how you'll hear these dreamers on TV. or And what does he mean she was never the same? She never got sick again? 
She never, never had any other physical ailments, any other. She ultimately died. So she obviously got sick again. So what do you mean? She was never the same again. Oh, and guess what? She continued to be a sinner. So what do you mean? She was never the same again. She was never the same positionally because of Christ imputed righteousness. Is that what you, do you mean she was never the same? What do you mean she was never the same again practically? What, what do, Christians always, I was never the same again. Yes, you are. You're still a sinner. What do you mean you were never the same again? Now, there may be changes. You now, your purpose, there, there's some things that change. So I guess maybe you, you've got to just quantify what you mean by never the same again, because in some ways you're very much the same, even though Christians never want to acknowledge or admit that. I don't watch many, frankly. I went, I died and went to heaven and came back. I died and went to hell and came back and all the things they saw. Listen, friends, if God touches your life, uh, it's, it's for real and it's, and it's forever. Say amen. amen. It's transforming. It's life-changing. And I can tell you, the day I finally said yes to Christ and his... Also, it's one of those very weird things that Christians don't are flesh out as well. If I, when I come to Jesus, if I'm completely transformed and I'm a new creature and the old is gone and everything is new practically, then why is there text after text after text that says, mortify the flesh, uh, you know, put on the new man, put off the old man, be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. Why is there text after text saying, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, if it all supposedly happened at salvation? No, I am literally transformed and made a new creature positionally. The Christian life is the never-ending task of trying to live out position, uh, practically what is true positionally, and I will never come close to matching that. Therefore, I've got to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and then ultimately in glorification, finally, my position and what I am practically will be merged into a unified whole because I'll be then what I, my body will be transformed. I'll have a new, a glorified body and the sinful nature will be gone. It will then be in cor- correspond to what I am positionally. Claims on me. It took a while. The old habits, some of them held on hard. The alcohol and the drug abuse and other things that I was involved in. Dr. Smith and I were talking last. Now, wait a minute. He says that he was a new creature in Christ, but he's saying the old habits held on strong. Drug abuse, alcohol. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. So then you weren't immediately transformed. Obviously, you weren't immediately changed. I don't know how Christians, I don't know how this doesn't drive everyone insane. We preach it one way, and then somewhere in the middle of the sermon, we just revert back to, well, I mean, it really isn't that, it's not that transformative, because, I mean, I still had alcoholism and drug abuse, and, whoa, so you weren't immediately changed. Last night, and he's told me this many times, he said he's never tasted alcohol in his life. Never tasted alcohol in his life. Man, I, I'd be so proud of that. I'd be so grateful to be able to say that. In the 80s, you remember, it was real popular to get the worst person possible and give this gory testimony how they were a murderer and a killer and all the drugs they uh, consumed and all the alcohol they drank and then at the end of it all give an invitation. Listen, there's some things we ought not even to speak about some things that are done in secret. Some things have no place in a pulpit. Say amen to that.
all I can say to you is that God changed my life. And shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me. And now I'm no longer the same. Aren't you glad you touched him? And aren't you glad for the day he touched you as well? Some of you, he reached down, you're just a little boy, and put his hand on your life, a little girl. And God changed your heart, and you never looked back. Some of us went the hard way and through the hog pen and through sin and all that comes with it. But no matter where you come from, it's a transforming life. And hers was a timely touch. There was a time for her to reach out and touch Jesus. He was passing by. And it was a moment in time. It was a moment in eternity. It was a moment in her life where she could reach out and be healed. I believe this, that you and I have appointed times. I believe that we are living in the last days. I do not believe that our time in this world is much longer. I still believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I still believe, I'm still, uh, I still believe in, uh, in the, uh, the, the coming of Christ. I'm still, uh, I believe in a millennial reign. I believe all the things that the Bible teaches about Ezekiel 38 and the coming war and all that's going to happen. And I see it happening and lining up very rapidly even as we speak this morning. The end of all things is at hand. And God said, be sober and watch unto prayer. And I believe with all of my heart that any moment now, Jesus could come, he could split the sky, and he himself could appear to us. And this morning, the message here, there's a time, there's a moment, there's a place for every one of us to find victory in the Lord. You see, I'm glad that this sinful, sick woman got healed. That's great. The problem is, I look at every Sunday, and I look at every time I preach somewhere, at a sinful and sickly generation. Someone just said, wait a minute. I thought this year they fight against Calvinism. Yeah, they are anti-Calvinism. Even in 2022, they're anti-Calvinism. But this reaching down and touching our lives sounded like you aren't in full control. I know. It's the, it's the never-ending... Look, there are times those who aren't Calvinists talk like Calvinist. They talk about like, like, God does it. And then there's other times they're like, no, we do it. And, and, and I've often said sometimes a non-Calvinist prays like a Calvinist because they're like, God do this and God do this. And, well, wait a minute. What about man? And then there's times sometimes a Calvinist will almost speak more like someone who's not a Calvinist because we're, we all struggle with consistency in one's theology. We definitely, 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 definitely do. But he's only got a couple of minutes left. And I, what I'm, what's crazy, this is supposed about salvation. He's yet to even mention the imputed righteousness of Christ. And then he talks about being transformative, but then he ta- literally acknowledged after being saved, he continued to struggle with alcohol. He continued to be, he continued to struggle with alcohol and drug abuse. So then, so then you weren't immediately transformed. So on one hand, he wants to make it sound like it's an instantaneous thing. God reaches down, he touches you, boom, it's all gone. Well, but then on the other hand, he talked about, no, it, it doesn't work that way. So I don't, like, it's all over the place in that, in that way. We're dressed right and we look good. Say amen. And we're not supposed to come in with signs on and having all of our sins broadcast for everybody to know. But we have issues just like this lady did. Do I have an amen to that? 
We have our own problems. We have our own needs. We have our own heartache that we're working through. Okay, now he's acknowledging that everyone there has sins. Hey, we may not wear the signs acknowledging, but we've all got issues. Well, wait a minute. I thought we were transformed. I thought we were a new creature. The old is gone. All is new. Now you're saying, hey, no, we may be all dressed up. Hey, now the issue is we're still sinners. Wait a minute. Which is it? Am I transformed or am I not? Make the distinction between transformation positionally versus the reality of what we are practically. And could you possibly give everyone hope of imputed righteousness? Because you sell the the practical transformation, even though now you're still, even at that very moment, you're like, hey, all of us here, we're all dressed up and we look good. But hey, we got sins. We got problems. Well, then where's the transformation that you so promised? Now, if you made the transformation positionally, then now it would be much more consistent to say, but practically we've got problems because you've already given people now hope for their sin, which is the imputed righteousness and finished work of Christ. Now you could talk about our struggle with our failure to live up to that positional reality. We have our own uh, need for victory in Jesus Christ and all we have to do is come to him. I love what God said in Hebrews 4, verse 14. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Man, I'd go up to the old Catholic church in which I was raised every Saturday or every uh, special season. We'd have to go up and make a confession. I would go up to the confessional and kneel down. My little friends would be lined up down the aisle. Most of the time, I would kneel down. There was a green light and a red light. With the red light was in, it meant somebody was kneeling. If you got up, it turned green. And while I was confessing sins to the priest, I'd be going up and down, red, green, red, green. Uh, the kids outside, you'd hear them snickering, laughing, red, green, red, green. And I'd say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. These are my sins. There was a little... Uh, uh, a little screen there between us and the priest. And you could usually tell which priest it was. One of them usually smelled like cigar smoke. The other one smelled like uh, scotch or bourbon or some other liquor. And one of them was just Michelob beer. So we knew who they were. And, I, and I'm not being facetious. It really was that way. Oh, Father Link's in there today. Father Sweeney's in there. Oh, man, Martell's in there. And we go through all the priests. And he would say, go to the altar Say three Hail Marys, four Our Fathers, and all will be well. And I would do that, and I would leave just as lost as a ball in high weeds. I would leave just as lost as a goose, feeling a bit religious, but lost. You see, I'd gone, gone to a priest, but I'd never gone to the great high priest. We went to the Baltimore Cathedral to do a great mass. I was an altar boy. A boy went down there and they had all the, the, the monsignors there. The cardinal came in. The cardinal and the archbishop of Baltimore were there. Brother, they had those crazy, those strange-looking pointed hats on, had their little staffs. They all had those dresses on. And I, I watched them up there all lined up. And, uh, brother, I... Uh There's no reason to just be disrespectful and re- refer to the vestments as dresses. That's just childish. Come on, this is not junior high it's supposedly a Bible conference. You may disagree with Catholic theology, but why would you attack the vestments? 
Vestments have been around in church history for a very long time. Greek Orthodox has vestments. Catholics have vestments. Episcopalians have vestments. Lutherans have vestments. Come on now. That's just ridiculous. They have their dresses. Come on. What do you think? You're big and bad because you don't wear vestments? You think you're somehow better than them? Like, come on. Deal with the differences in a theological way. And come on. And so far, you know what I've heard? I haven't heard anything different than Roman Catholicism because you're yet to point me to the finished work of Jesus Christ. All you've pointed to is my emotions and what I feel and what I do. Uh, we were uh, we were lined up. We were in awe. Nobody. Okay, now someone just made a funny joke. They don't have a tie. They're lost. Okay, yeah, I do remember the independent fundamental. That's probably someone who's been in the independent fundamental Baptist world because, man, you had to wear a tie. Like when I was in the my first Bible Institute in an independent fundamental Baptist church, I had to wear a tie to school. I had to wear a tie to every service. I ha- it, it was mandatory if I did not wear a tie. I remember... One Saturday, the pastor's son who was in the Bible Institute, he had his tie on, but I think he had it way like undone, like way undone, right? Like it was around his neck, but I mean, the, the knot was nowhere near his neck. It was like way down, like he had it pulled all the way down to like his chest, right? Like it was, it wasn't on. So he, uh, the, the pastor got on to him and basically said, you need to put your tie on. Now the, 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 his son's like, you know, 18, 19, I don't know, 20, you know, he's, he's an adult, but yeah, he's, Hey, you got to have that tie on. So he got into it and then it was the son got mad and then ran out and it was a big confrontation over a tie. I'm like, for crying out loud, a tie? But yeah. And then I remember someone visiting my church and they said, we love the teaching, but we cannot come back because he's not wearing a tie. And they never came back to the church because I wasn't wearing a tie. Nobody could get near them. You couldn't touch them. They said, get away. They'd scold you. They'd get you out of the room if you were an altar boy and tried to touch them. They were untouchable. But I'm going to tell you, when I got saved by the grace of God, I reached out to a great high priest who washed me in his precious blood and changed my life from the inside out. And now we have boldness and access to the throne of God each day. Please note his 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 supposed doctrine of salvation really includes the payment of sin, right? You could call that propitiation. He has nothing about imputation, and then he jumps immediately to supposed sanctification that he's really much connecting with justification and not even dealing with forensic justification or imputation. And really, it's kind of creating kind of a Catholic idea. You get saved, you get infused with righteousness, and therefore you you will be changed. And obviously, if you're not changed, the implication would here would be, well, then you've never touched the great physician, therefore you're not saved. Meaning, your salvation is judged and dependent upon your action, not the finished work of Jesus Christ. Day, through him by a new and living way. I was a young guy starting out in the ministry. Susan and I were just kids. We'd had our first baby. I was supposed to preach in a little church over in Anne Arundel County on a Sunday night. It was a very cold, nasty night. My wife said, the baby's not doing well, and 
she had a fever and she stayed home with her. I said, okay, honey, I'll come right home. I'll be home right after church. Drove over, the, over to uh, that area by myself and I preached in a Sunday night service and a little lady walked up to me and said, Brother Rossi, could you do me a favor? I said, well, sure I could, ma'am. She said, my daughter or my, my niece was burned in a house fire. She has third degree burns and they don't think she's going to make it. Could you visit her? I said, well, where is she? She said, she's at the Francis Scott Key Burn Unit down at, uh, down at City Hospital. I know Dr. Smith is familiar. It's a bad place. I said, ma'am, I'll be good, glad to visit. I went to a payphone. How many remember those? A payphone. Wasn't any of these going on. I mean, a payphone. And I put my dime in. How many remember a dime? Put my dime in. And I said, honey, I... I've got to make a visit. She said, you go ahead. Went over there and parked the car, and I walked into the hospital. There was nobody there. It was kind of a strange, eerie night. It was cold. It was raining. And I remember going up to the burn unit, and the front desk was vacant. No one was in the desk. That never happens. And I looked up on the board, and her name was right there on, on a whiteboard, and her room number, and I walked back. I found out later that it was all quarantine. No one's supposed to go there. And I walked in, and there was a lady there and dressed in bandages from head to toe. The only thing showing were her eyes, <clears throat> lidless. The eyelids had literally been burned and scalded off. A little bit of her mouth, a bit of her nose. And then I could see her fingers barely sticking out from the gauze that had literally been burned and looked more like charred sticks than fingers. She was burned from head to toe. And I walked in and said, my name's Brother Rossi. I'm a preacher. She said, hi, Brother Rossi. Thank you for visiting me. I said, are you okay? She said, I'm in such horrible pain. And she started to cry. And Dr. Smith, I watched tears run down and start to soak the gauze bandages all around her face. Now, a powerfully sad story does show that when you're a pastor and you're in those situations, you sometimes ask ridiculous questions because asking a person who's burned like that, are you okay? But all right, Let, let's see what, what, how, what is he going to do with this story? What, what is he going to, where is he going to take this story? And I said, has anyone ever showed you from the Bible how you can go to heaven when you die? Has anyone ever showed you from the Bible what it means to receive God's gift of eternal life? Here's what I believe. God can save anybody, anywhere, and I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And I said, ma'am, and she said, I've never done that. And she started to cry. She said, I've lived a wicked life. I've lived in sin. I said, Susan, God can save you. He loves you. He'll forgive everything you've ever done. Can he forgive me? I said, he is a, listen, how many of you ever had to go to a specialist? Could I see you? I mean, you had to go for the, he's a sin specialist, amen? And I said, he will change your life. And I, and I took her. The hope he's giving her is a changed life. The hope, he's not giving her the hope of an imputed righteousness. 
This is so typical in, in Christianity today. The hope isn't that God will change your behavior. The hope is that he will declare you perfectly righteous because of an imputed righteousness. This is such a, it is so weird how the gospel is slowly being changed in American evangelical fundamentalism. It's just so crazy. It is so crazy. And you can have your own feelings about should you walk into a burn unit when a person is burned this bad and start trying to give them the gospel. Some say it's the definite thing you should do. Others may go, I don't know. I mean, the person is so emotional. They're in pain. I don't know, but okay. All right. Her hand, and that's when I really saw how bad it was. I gave her the gospel and she prayed like a little girl. Jesus, please forgive me. Please save me. Lord, I do believe that you died for me. I believe you rose again. And I mean, brother, victory came into that room by the bucket load. It was, it was on. We got done praying. She said, I'm so happy. I know I have peace. And I left her. And several months later, I preached in that church again. The little lady was there. And I said, how's your niece doing? She said, oh, brother Rossi, she died. She said, nobody ever got to see her. Nobody ever got to visit her. She never regained consciousness. She said, I'm sure they wouldn't let you in. I said, oh, ma'am, I went over to see her. And she was as alive as you are and I am right now. She said, I said, I promise you. And I said, ma'am, she trusted Christ as her Savior. She said, Susan died that night and never did regain consciousness. You know what happened? The great physician, he passed by. She tried all kinds of doctors. She tried all kinds of cures. She just kept getting worse. She heard about Jesus. And she said, if I could just touch him. And when she did. There's a part of this that makes me, that makes my skin crawl. Right here, like I kind of got goosebumps. Because he's taking a story where a woman was actually healed physically and saying, well, here's this woman who was burned all to death. I mean, she died, but hey, 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 the great physician healed her. Now, I understand you want to say salvation is more important, but it just seems like a weird text to say, hey, here's Jesus actually healed this woman but I mean, Jesus didn't bother to heal that woman. Like, like it just seems like it would raise that. It would raise more of a question. Well, what, if the, he's the great physician, why didn't he heal her? Like, I mean, it seems like it almost would demand that kind of question being raised instead of just this. It, to me, it just feels like I don't know if I would even want to walk into this because it just seems now you're destroying the the whole message of the gospel, and it turns into wait a minute, wait a minute. So Jesus could heal a woman with an issue with blood, but this woman burned completely to death. No, he he allows her to be awake. He allows miraculously all the people, all the nurses are gone. There's no one at the station. You're able to just walk in. Nobody else for the family was able to get in, but you're able to get in. You're able to present the gospel. And then she loses consciousness and she goes to heaven because she saw, she finally got to see the great physician. But I mean, I understand salvation is far more important than physical healing. It just seems like a, a weird contrast considering you're using a text that's actually about physical healing. She was made every whit whole. 
That means anybody we speak to, and that means in our churches, we can still win people to Christ. Penny came forward Sunday morning visiting our church. I said, perhaps you've never been saved. She raised her hand. She came forward, and one of our soul winners on the front row led Penny to Christ, and she got saved by the grace of God. That's what this is all about. It's getting people to Him and getting them on the solid rock and get their feet settled and grounded in Him. Father, we thank You for the Word of God. There you have it. That was the third message preached at the 2022 National Sword Conference. The 2023 National Sword Conference begins in just a couple of hours. You can go to swordofthelord.com. At swordofthelord.com. I'm opening up my iPad right now. Um, it is swordofthelord.com, I believe. Hang on. Swordofthelord.com. Where is it? Here we go. Yes, yeah, swordofthelord.com. And uh, you should be able to find where you can live stream it. It's free. We're going to be keeping track of it and talking about it. There's a lot there in that sermon to discuss. Probably you have strong feelings about some of that. Feel free to email it to me, newsif at yahoo.com. I just know that that was a sermon on salvation, and not once was anyone ever truly pointed to the imputed work of the imputed righteousness of Christ. But salvation was more about a behavioral change, changing you, not your position, but practically. And you could well have a long discussion about that. And that last story, I don't know how you would want to handle that. I don't know how you would, how you feel about that last story. I guarantee you there's going to be a divided response over that. Email me your thoughts, newsif at yahoo.com. Please listen to the Sword of the Lord conference for 2023. Again, we may, we're going to disagree with a lot, but it's always, well, fun to hear their different perspectives. I wish in the sermon we just reviewed from 2022, I wish, um, that would have actually kind of given us maybe what Mark 5 is there for and really work through the text. But he just kind of took the text and turned it into an allegory without really giving us a textual reason or hermeneutical reason for why he was doing that. All right. But I would love to get your thoughts. I apologize for the way this broadcast had to be all put together because of the technological problems we encountered in our first attempt, but this was the second attempt where we put everything together to create some level of continuity between everything. I think it worked out pretty well. It went obviously much longer than was originally intended, but hopefully you've got plenty to meditate and think upon. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great evening, and please enjoy the Sword of the Lord 2023 National Conference, swordofthelord.org. Uh, com is where you can watch it for free. And if you do, take notes and email me your thoughts and perspectives to newsif at yahoo.com. And the plan is around 10 p.m. I'll be right here back in the studio and we'll talk about the first day's messages. And uh, hopefully it'll be beneficial. Thanks for listening. God bless.